So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today we are really excited to be joined by Vivek Chibber, who is a professor of sociology at NYU, and he's also the editor of Catalyst, a journal of theory and strategy. Welcome to the show, Vivek. Uh, great to be here, Lev. Thank you. Wonderful. So today we're going to be talking about Edward Said and his book, Orientalism. And I think a good place to, to start would be to talk a little bit about Edward Said, the person, you know, who was he? And then just the relative importance of the book itself. Well, Said was um, probably the most well-known Palestinian intellectual and indeed one of the most well-known Arab intellectuals in the Western world, starting, I would say, from the late 70s onwards to his death in the early 2000s. He was extremely well known for his literary uh, work, his literary criticism. He was a renowned scholar of English literature, uh, employed at a prestigious university at Columbia, which had a lot to do with his fame and fortune because it helps to be employed at prominent institutions um, if you're going to be well known, (laughs) a springboard which otherwise people don't have. He uh, was famous for two things. One was he was a very dedicated and very committed advocate for Palestinian rights and for ending the Israeli occupation uh, of the West Bank and Gaza Strip and for sustaining Palestinian demands for some sort of nationhood and sovereignty. And this especially became so after the Oslo Accords of 1993, which he considered to be a betrayal by Yasser Arafat and the PLO of the Palestinian cause. The second thing that he was famous for was being a critic of imperialism and colonialism more generally, which, of course, naturally, his uh, background and his origins as a Palestinian prepared him for and made him more sensitive to. But in his scholarship on colonialism, his work had much wider relevance, and much wider resonance than his work on Palestine itself. What catapulted him on this score as a critic of colonialism was this book called Orientalism that came out in 1978. And Orientalism was arguably one of the three or four most influential books in history, in this discipline of history, in cultural studies, in literary theory, probably of the past two generations. Orientalism became known as the book which enshrined the criticism of the European colonial project placed that project in the center of historical scholarship on the global South very soon after it was published. Today, if you walk into a history department or anthropology or a cultural studies department and you say the word Orientalism, it is intimately associated with Said. He did not invent the word. The word itself described or denoted the study of the non-West Uh, by the West since the late 19th century, the word had been used, but it's become so closely associated with the book that merely to invoke the term uh, also reminds you of Saeed. So he did a lot to, not just for the Palestinian cause, but for anti-colonialism and anti-imperialism more generally. Thank you. So let's now get to the, the main arguments of the book. You discussed two of the most maybe important arguments, one inverts the other. So let's start with the first. It's the materialist argument. And and what do you mean by materialist? And then what is the argument? All right. So let's first discuss what materialism is. It's a general orientation in social explanations. What it says is if you try to explain where 
certain ideology comes from, why certain ideas have great uh, resonance in the culture, why people have the beliefs that they do. You have to locate those beliefs, those ideas in the social conditions uh, that are prevalent at the time. So if you want to understand why notions of individualism, individuality, and rights, those notions became so dominant in the modern era, in the 18th, 19th century, it's not because great minds brought them about and nobody had thought of them before. It's because the social conditions in the 19th and 20th century fostered the kind of a need for or a recognition of individuality which prior to the rise of capitalism had been impossible. It's probably the case that there have been people throughout history who wanted to promote ideas of individual freedom and individual rights, but in a context of a feudal economy or a slave economy, they simply had no relevance whatsoever. So that's an example of a materialist explanation. Mm -hmm. You explain the prevalence of ideas by pointing to the social conditions which give them their currency, okay? So now, when it comes to colonialism, there had been a approach to understanding the ideology that justifies colonialism, approach to understanding that ideology by looking at the social conditions, the economic requirements of colonialism, how it needed an ideology to justify it, and then explaining colonial imperial ideologies and their prevalence by reference to the function that they served for the colonial project, for the economic and political project of colonialism. So what we say in shorthand is imperial ideologies serve the material interests or the social project of colonial rulers, okay? That's a materialist explanation. Now, how is Orientalism playing into that? Well, the word Orientalism has been used in two ways historically. One was a very neutral anodyne use of the term. It was just meant to denote the study of the Orient, the, a very fine-tuned, detailed scholarship of facts, even minutiae about the Orient that was done and taken, uh, carried out by European scholars. A lot of it was very valuable. A lot of it, a lot of our current knowledge of 17th, 18th century Asia, the Middle East comes from what we would call Orientalist scholars in the neutral sense of the term, Europeans who studied the non-West. But Orientalism also came to mean a negative thing. And that was not just a certain depiction or a study of the East, but a study of the East that presented it in a very distorted way, distorted in a particular way, which is in a way that justified the denial of rights, the denial of freedoms, and the subjugation of the East. Now, what was this distorted way? It was what the, the core of the Orientalist worldview was one, which looked at the East as fundamentally different from the West not just different in a very obvious sense that they have different cuisines, different ways of dressing, different attitudes to our social life, but so different that the basic needs, the basic desires and the cognitive abilities of Eastern people was different from the West. So there were two worlds. There was the Orient and there was the Occident, the West. And these two worlds generated entirely different kinds of minds, not just different sorts of cultures, different sorts of habits, but different sorts of minds. Now, why was that important? It was important because in the 19th century, there were in the West itself, very many critics of the colonial project. And they criticized it 
by accusing it of denying Eastern people the freedoms, the rights that Western people were coming to enjoy at that time. And of course, soon thereafter, people in the East, intellectuals in the East, in the colonized world also started to bring up a desire to be free and a desire to have their own sovereignty. In responding to these criticisms, elites in the West resorted to this depiction, Orientalist depiction of the East, because when they were, they were told you're denying Indians or you're denying Africans the freedoms that the British have, they would respond to it by saying, well, Indians and Africans don't have the same needs that we do. They don't have the same desires that we do. They don't have the requirement for freedom that we do. They have an entirely different conception of freedom, an entirely different conception of good and bad. So not only is it okay for us to rule over them, you, the people who are saying they deserve these freedoms are actually imposing a Western conception of the good and a Western conception of freedom on the East. And so Orientalist ideology came to be the justifying discourse of the imperial project in that it painted and depicted the East as so different from the West that the freedoms and the rights enjoyed by people in the West were simply not only required in the East, but would be an alien concept to Eastern people. And so it became a very convenient ideology for the imperial overlords. And this is a materialist explanation. You explain the resort to and the use of Orientalism by pointing to the functions it serves for the material interests of the imperial overlords. This summer, I read Capitalism and Slavery by Eric Williams, and I assigned parts of it to my 10th grade class. And this sounds like Williams's argument. Yeah, Williams was absolutely adamant that racist ideologies in the West were rooted in the economic interests of imperialism. He was very clear about it. In fact, most of the left today would call Williams a class reductionist or whatever the terms they reserve for mm -hmm. socialists. <laughs> Yeah. And so then let's talk about the second argument, which you point out inverts the first. Yes. So when Saeed wrote Orientalism, a big chunk of the book Orientalism reproduces this materialist argument with great literary flair and great scholarship. He shows how novelists, historians, um, cultural theorists from the 19th, 20th centuries in the West, how they were their work was deeply imbued with, let's be honest, a racist uh, caste. Orientalism is really a form of racism. So he shows that, and he is here partaking of this materialist tradition of analyzing imperial ideologies. Said was not the first to do so, and it's important to stress this because there's been an incredible whitewashing of intellectual history in the last couple of decades where people say that Said is the first to criticize Orientalism as an imperial ideology. That's absolute nonsense. He was maybe the 744th person to do so. Uh, it, this had been a staple of the entire 20th century left, both the European left and the non-European left since the, I would say, the late 19th century. So part of it, he reproduces that criticism. But then he also does something new. What he does is, instead of explaining Orientalist ideology, as a consequence of imperialism, he also insists simultaneously and in a kind of, kind of a confused way 
that imperialism was a consequence of an Orientalist mindset on the part of the West. So now he's, as you said, inverting it. Now he's saying being Orientalist, being racist is what drove the colonial project outward. Now, in addition to this, he does a second thing. He doesn't simply say that it was being racist that impelled the British or the French into Africa and Asia. He says that that mindset that uh, exoticizes the East, that shows it as unchanging, that shows it as being fundamentally different from the West and inscrutable, that's been around since the time of Homer, since the ancient Greeks. And that attitude is incapable of understanding the East much as the East is incapable of understanding, he says, the West. So now what Said is doing is not only is he making ideas the progenitors of the colonial project, he's saying those ideas are reflective of a deep divide in the mindset of the West and the mindset of the East. Well, Sorry, can I just interrupt for one second? Yeah. Um, yeah. We have materialism on one side, which says it's about social structures and class. What do you call it when, when you put ideas at the forefront at, for, for historical change? Well, the traditional term for that was idealism. Oh, so okay. there was materialism versus idealism. In academia, you have to come up with a new word every 25 or 30 years. <laughs> okay. it, it makes it look like you're being novel. So the new words now is culturalism or constructivism instead of idealism. Mm-hmm. Um, but it all points to the same thing. It's, it's a debate between one side that says social conditions explain ideas and the other side that says ideas are independent of social conditions, right? Okay, yeah. So what Said ends up then with is not only an idealist explanation for where colonialism comes from, but also, and this is the real irony, he ends up reproducing a uh, inverted Orientalism of his own. So whereas Orientalists had said that the East is fundamentally different from the West and therefore the West cannot understand it, Said says the West has always been imbued with this uh, a mindset that essentializes and reifies the East and it is a component of the Western mind. So ironically, he ends up enshrining this deep chasm between East and West in the very book that was supposed to be uh, dismantling it. And final kicker is, in my view, that's what made the book so, so, so successful. He wrote it at a time when the Western intelligentsia was looking for ways of putting discourse and ideas at the center of everything. For those of you who are listening, who know something, this was the about that time. This was when post-structuralism and uh, discourse analysis and Derrida and Foucault was all becoming all the rage. Um, and Said wrote the book at a time when the intelligentsia was ready to put ideas at the center of the universe. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I was so interested in that part of that part of your essay, which can be found both in Catalyst and, and on Jacobin. I want to talk about that warm reception. So, you know, you point out it's because Said never responds to his Marxist critics, of which there are two prominent ones that you mentioned in the article, in any way that's not ambiguous, right? So he's able to have, it seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong here, um, we can all have our cake and eat it too. In other words, Marxists are kind of attracted to the materialist argument. And then you've got all these people who are reading Foucault, who are excited about discourse. So maybe we could talk about that 
that moment in the in the late 70s, early 80s, when you say intellectuals are ready for a new type of argument, why do they turn away from the materialist argument? It's important to realize that it's not just intellectuals per se that we're talking about. Uh, in the mainstream, the conservative intellectuals, they never took a side very seriously. They, they thought of him as a good scholar, but basically confused for the wrong reasons. I mean, it was because he was a critic of colonialism and they weren't happy with that. Mm -hmm. It's within what's called the self-style radical intelligentsia that you see the Saeed train really taking off. And in the early, late 70s, early 80s, that's no small part of the intellectual world. Remember, this is now at the end of the decade-long anti-war movement against the Vietnam War, of the civil rights movement. Now, that's a decade after the civil rights movement, but uh, there's a deep uh, cultural and intellectual imprint of that movement on the intelligentsia. And any trace of racism or racial domination is viewed by the intelligentsia as being morally unacceptable. And of course, what was colonialism other than racism enshrined, right? And of course, the feminist movement as well. So the, there's a very large section of the intelligentsia that sees itself as radical, that sees itself as being anti-mainstream, anti-status quo in some way, for whom a book like Said's is going to meet, find an immediate audience. There also was an audience that was Marxist. Now, for the Marxist, Said's book was... Uh, nothing new, and it's in many ways confused because of this new idealism that he was promoting. The key point is the Marxist section of the intelligentsia is now getting smaller and smaller and smaller by the early 80s. The flip side of that is that the self-styled radicals, most of whom are now academics, because the communist parties have collapsed. They don't have intelligence intellectuals anymore. The socialist parties are in decline. The labor movement is in decline. So left intellectuals had either been around the labor movement and the socialist movement, or they'd been in the academies. Up until the seventies, there were very few academics who were Marxists. They'd never been allowed in. They'd never, they'd been kicked out of academia or never been allowed in. They were all in the labor movement. Labor movement now is in decline. It's going down. So what happens is these youngsters who were in the anti-war movement and had gone down to the South for voter registration and all that, they come back to college and they, seeing themselves as radicals, having nowhere else to go, they get jobs in universities. This is the new radical intelligentsia, it's professors. Now what basically, by the early eighties, most of these professors have not been active for very long. They have no con connection to the labor movement, no connection to real social movements, but they are now in a middle-class elite setting where being a Marxist will cost you. It comes with a certain cost. They're all worried about tenure. They're all worried about getting along. And, you know, frankly, they're leading pretty cushy lives. So the Marxism doesn't have much attraction to them anymore. But consider thinking of themselves as radicals becomes part of their self-image. And it still is. If you walk into a Black studies program, an ethnic studies program, a gender studies, they're all radicals. Every one of them is a radical. But it's a radicalism that is increasingly uninterested in or hostile to socialism and to Marxism. To them, now, there's a need to have a radical ideology, a radical theory that is not tainted with the Marxist stamp. Said is very important for that because he, he makes it possible not just to be a radical and not suffer the professional consequences, 
he makes it possible to overtly reject Marx and still call yourself a radical. It's key in Ori Orientalism, to my knowledge, is the first book of that generation, which presents itself as a critique of colonialism, as a radical critique of colonialism, and castigates Marx as being part of the Orientalist pantheon. Mm. Just another white male, as people say now. That was a godsend to this, this new breed of radical who was looking for a way to detach itself from the taint of being associated with socialist and Marxist ideas. Said played a, the role in that. And uh, I think that's ma mainly why he became as popular as he did. So what would the this self-styled radical left have us do to overcome racism and colonialism? It, it's what you're seeing today. It's uh, diversity training. It's changing your ideas, changing your... It, for them, it, look, if you locate racism in ideas and in uh, what's called uh, hidden bias and psychological bias and all that, the solution is man, you change people's attitudes. How do you change their attitudes? Well, you brainwash them. <laughs> you, you talk to them a lot. You, you educate them. All that stuff, nobody denies that that's important. Of course, it's been important. But if you really think that racial oppression exists because prejudice exists. You're living in a different world. It's exactly the other way around. Prejudice exists because racial oppression exists. So it's a very convenient, once you, once you de-link racial oppression from economic and material circumstances, it's great for elites and for the middle-class intellectuals because you no longer have to try to overturn economic and material circumstances to solve the problem of racism. You simply have to sensitize people to their biases and their prejudices, et cetera. So now you have all this you know, mandatory brainwashing in high schools and colleges, et cetera, where you have to take anti-racist training and all this stuff uh, as if that's a solution to racial oppression. That's the, that's the legacy of this stuff. And uh, it continues to today. Well, if I could just push back for a moment, um, another way of thinking about it, it, it as opposed to brainwashing is just, you know, Educating. So I could imagine somebody saying, well, all right, then, you know, you don't really believe in the power of, of educating people and, and changing individuals' minds and opinions. What would you say to that? Uh, I would say you change the, the, what is the dirty little secret of American culture is that the culture itself has become incredibly educated about race since the civil rights movement. Every poll we know shows this. Attitudes have changed massively across the board, across every demographic. And yet the situation of black and brown people has not. How do you explain that? Other than the fact that the attitudes are not what's driving their subjugation. The attitudes are changing without being able to also change the circumstances of their subjugation. What are these circumstances? It is the fact that they have to, they live in the most poverty-stricken areas of the country. They don't have jobs. They have the lowest skills. The educational system is in shambles. The healthcare and every score of healthcare, they do the worst. And the discursive ideological explanation for this is, well, it's because of prejudice. It's very hard to sustain that when you see in survey after survey after survey, every part of the culture we know of, prejudices have gone down, not up. That means that that is not at the root cause of it. Now, yeah, I use the word brainwashing because it's a very loaded term, mm -hmm. but it's, it's meant to denote 
that educational uplifting has never solved the problem of racial oppression. What has solved the problem of racial oppression is changing people's choice sets, taking the oppressed and giving them resources, actual resources like jobs, like healthcare, like housing. And don't believe me, just listen to Martin Luther King. The, the idea that the civil rights movement was about changing people's attitudes and educating them is just nonsense. The, the march on Washington was a march for rights and jobs. King, very quickly after 1965, came to the conclusion that giving Black America formal rights would be useless if they continue to live in poverty and continue to live in abject, um, terrible circumstances. And that's why he spent the last years of his life on what's called the uh, Poor People's Campaign. Mm -hmm. Poor People's Campaign. Why? Because he saw that unless you dealt with the problem of poverty, Black America would remain at the bottom of the rung in the United States. Now, King came out of the socialist tradition and the, most of the civil rights movement's leadership came out of that tradition. That's the difference between that era and this era today. It's quite astonishing that if you think that racism is at the heart of American society, the CEO of Goldman Sachs comes out and says, well, yes, the solution is uh, we have to eradicate systemic racism. And he gives you the solution is diversity training. So this is a guy who's trying to destroy his own system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in 1860, if you had taken educators from the North and gone to the South and tried to, tried to do diversity training and, and education with plantation owners, it wouldn't have been very effective, but a civil war certainly was. Exactly. So, so is that what you mean by changing the options that people have? Yeah, you can educate people all you want about not being racist. What matters is what is the quality of life that a Latino or a Black American leads. And I can be as nice as I want to them, but if they're forced to live the life of a unskilled wage laborer who doesn't have healthcare, who has shitty schools, the oppressive conditions of their lives as Black people and brown people haven't changed. What's changed is my attitude towards them, but my attitude doesn't matter if I'm employing them as unskilled laborers every day, as, my, as the fruit pickers every day. What will change is that they no longer, no longer have to work as fruit pickers or in McDonald's or in Walmart. Now I deal with them as an equal, not only in my attitude, but in my social interaction with them every day. I live in the same neighborhood as them. I work in the same place as them. But if in my daily life they are subjugated to me in their daily lives because they work for me or because they're my menials or because they're my garbage collectors, what is my attitude going to do to change their their actual lives? And it's, it seems to me like you're you're not making the argument that culture doesn't exist, but you're saying that that culture is largely determined by political economy, and that as yeah. the economy I changes, yeah. I see then culture can change too. So it's not something which is timeless and unchanging. And that it exists somewhere in the soil or the water or the atmosphere. It's not like there's an East and there's a West since the dawn of time. Those categories have been created by things like war and, and imperialism. Yep, that's exactly what I'm saying. If you want racist ideology to dissipate, you've got to change the social and material conditions of the people who are subject to racist ideology. That's, it's as simple as that. 
Would you say that the diversity training that you've experienced, I, I guess you've experienced some at NYU, has been Orientalist in nature then? 100%. It's laughable. The, the books that are coming out, I mean, not, not every single bit of it, but it's totally imbued with it. It's a paternalistic ideology. It treats black and brown people like children. So in, for example, this is a great example. So you get this stuff like, um, what's your name, Angela? What's her name? The one who wrote White Fragility. Robin D'Angelo. Robin D'Angelo. It's racist to expect black people to show up on time to work. Why? Because black people have a different attitude towards timeliness. Seriously? Now, to, instead well, well, of let saying, me ask you, let me ask you, why aren't people, in your in your opinion, why aren't people standing up at these meetings? I mean, you work with really oh, smart, they're smart terrified. people. They're okay. terrified. They're race baited. The second they say anything, they're race baited. Well, but 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 who who gains from that ideology? I mean, who gains by? by shutting down that conversation? Well, look, the, the minority population in this country is not a homogenous blob. It's economically differentiated. And what's happened, once you, Jamie Dimon and Joe Biden and uh, you know, the, the members of the American corporate elite come out and say that the solution to the plight of Blacks and Latinos in this country is not jobs, and healthcare and education. But the solution is uh, diversity training and diversity diversification of our elite institutions. Who do you think benefits? It's the stratum, small, but still not trivial, the stratum of middle-class, highly educated black and brown elites who find an enormous opportunity for upward advancement for themselves. This is true, not just in the US. Look, this is the history of nationalism in the global South. Nationalist movements always had two wings to them. There was the wing that demanded radical structural change in the colonized country as a component of their nationalist movement. What is nationalism for? We need to have land reform. We need to have trade unions. We need to have nationalized major industries. We need to have a bill of economic rights. That's what they said. Then there was a wing that's on nationalism simply as removing the white overlords, keeping the structures basically the same, but then the, the upper, upper layer of black and brown colonial subjects taking the position that the overlords used to occupy. Now that's because it was a differentiated population. It had an elite and it had peasants and workers. Same in this country. So if you reduce anti-racism, to cultural stuff, to anti, to diversification and diversifying elite institutions, it's the elites within the populations that benefit. And they propose, they're the proponents of this stuff. This is just sociology 101. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I hear you, it, it reminds me of the, the writings of Adolf Reed, who is, um, well, I think he's a fantastic political scientist um, at, at UPenn. But when I read, when I read Reed and when I, hear your critique, you know, I also, in the back of my mind, I hear those, those voices which say, all right, but let's look at Scandinavia, which does have a, a different class structure, and yet there's lots and lots of racism. So you've, you've changed the class dynamics, but you haven't really gotten rid of the racism. How, how do you respond to that? Who says that? <laughs> I mean, Sweden had the best immigration policy 
in Europe, when the Syrian refugees came pouring across Europe, Sweden accepted something like, I think it was 15% of their population as refugees. What, what, where is the, I would just deny the premise. I mean, I'm sure you'll find racism there. You'll find it everywhere. Mm-hmm. But are you going to actually hold Sweden in the same category as the United States when it comes to racial oppression? It's, I'd like to meet the person who says that. That's just ridiculous. So, so you think that the social democracies or the welfare states in Europe have less? I mean, I guess what we're talking no, about here is... Look, Lev, there's no doubt about it. And people yeah. need to stop being kowtowed by this kind of nonsense. There's no mm-hmm. doubt about it. Yeah, and I think what's kind of interesting about this conversation is that we, we haven't really discussed, and maybe we can talk about it now, what we mean by racism, right? So, you know, I was talking to um, a Black... German professor who was saying, look, here in Germany, I might experience more racism, like in the store, people might follow me around and might give me dirty looks. And I experience it here in Germany more than I would say in New York. His, his dad is African-American, but he was saying, but I don't feel like, I feel like in Germany, I can go up to a police officer and say I'm being treated unfairly by that police officer where in the United States, I might be afraid of being shot. And it's a different kind of, of racism. So we really have to be clear about what we mean by, by racism. That's exactly right. So let me be absolutely clear about it. If you think of racism simply as being prejudice, it's really quite irrelevant. Because groups of people can be prejudiced towards each other. And in India is a very multicultural society. I'm, I belong, I'm what's called a Punjabi. I married a Bengali. Punjabis usually have dim views of Bengalis. Their parent, Punjabi families will prefer it if their kids marry Punjabis, not Bengalis. And it's reciprocated. Bengalis prefer it if their kids marry Bengalis, blah, blah, blah. None of us say the other is being racist towards us. Why? Because neither group has power over the other. And that's the key. I can be prejudiced towards you. You can be prejudiced towards me. It has no bearing on our lives because you cannot affect the quality of my life by your prejudice towards me. I still get a great job. I still live in a great house. I still have health care, everything. Why? Because there's no power differential. Where racism really matters is not when it's an attitude that's negative towards the other person, but where you have the power to actually put that attitude into practice by denying them certain important things. Well, what do welfare states do? Welfare states fundamentally redistribute economic resources so that people have the necessities of life as a right, regardless of their racial, gender, or ethnic status, which gives whites, let's let's be perfectly honest, which gives whites less power over that German professor, sorry, that African German professor, or over in this country, a black working class person. Once you have more material equality between groups, the power of prejudice to actually affect a person's life is also reduced. Whereas if the prejudice exists in a context where the economically dominant group has power over the daily lives of the economically subordinate group, now that racist attitude has a real bearing on the life of the subordinate group. And that's why When we talk about racism, what we should be talking about is not racial prejudice per se, but racial stigma. Groups can be prejudiced towards each other reciprocally. 
groups that are stigmatized are the ones that actually experience the really negative side of racism. Look, look at Indians in this country. I'm an Indian. Sure, I've, I've experienced slights. I experience insults here and there, but it has no bearing on the quality of my life writ large because, well, as it happens, the richest ethnicity in the United States is Indians. So if I'm subject to racial oppression, that means the word oppression has no meaning because Indians do better than anyone else in this country. Being subject to somebody's prejudice is not the same thing as being subject to racial oppression or racial stigma. And what removes the stigma is guaranteed access to resources, guaranteed access to the material necessities of life. Thank you. That's very clear. This is the last question. In the last part of the show, I'm, I've started asking guests because I, I, I need this. I've started asking guests, what is it in the world that makes them most optimistic? So I, I want to ask you that question. What's optimistic right now is that after 40 years of going unchallenged, neoliberalism is finally being challenged, not just here, but everywhere. That's important. 20 years ago, it was impossible to make a public case for a Bernie Sanders style uh, economic social program. It's not only possible today, but it's on the agenda. And there's a generation of 20-somethings, 30-somethings that is so attuned to the world in which they live today and that's so committed to trying to make it better that you cannot help but be encouraged by it. This was not true all the way up till the Occupy Wall Street movement. It simply wasn't true. It's an uphill battle because these ideas that we've been discussing and these ridiculous notions that it's individual attitudes that, that determine the world, it's all this sort of stuff. This is, this is all a hangover of the neoliberal era. So we are challenged to now, as it were, recreate a political culture and a political approach that understands power as it actually is wielded. That's a hard task, uh, but I'm more optimistic about it today than I was even 10 years ago. And I don't think that's gonna change. I think neoliberalism has nothing to offer. There are no solutions right now coming out of the mainstream establishment and their intellectuals, including the black and brown ones. It'll take a long time and we don't have a lot of time because of climate change, but at least now people are coming back to thinking of the world as it actually exists. That, that gives me hope. 